So we're hoping to talk about interesting places that are relevant to Black history, African-American history, or to being uh, Black or African-American individuals. There must be some place where it's like you and a place that you would go to with your Black friends when you were living in Brooklyn that you probably wouldn't take some of your California, not necessarily Black friends. Like, is there a place where you would both get your haircut and some food? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I got nothing. Welcome to Curious, a talk show where I chat with my friends about what makes us curious in both senses of the word. I'm Jason Anthony Guy, and my guest this episode is my good friend and occasional co-host, Ron Lusang. Here's one. The Holocaust War Memorial. Okay. So this is a location that I went to on holiday. I think it was just in 2015, in summer. Uh, I'd gone out there to South Florida for my cousin's wedding, and we were just taking a tour around um, Miami. Who's we? Uh, My wife and kids. The two kids, one age 16, one age seven. You know, we had an opportunity to go there, but we didn't have to go to, you know, there were lots of other sites to see, but we happened to stop by. And it's a place where you can see pictures taken during the Holocaust before the U.S. got involved in the war. And one of the things that was really amazing to me was seeing the number of people who had been uh, persecuted this way just because of their background. And it really reminds me that even though I, as a black person in America, I always feel singled out in crowds of not black people. I always feel like that one individual who's singled out is different. The persecution of others exists all over. And this is something that you know, affected the Jewish community during the Holocaust all throughout Europe. And this is a sort of persecution that happens today for gay, lesbian, transgender, sort of thing that happens for all sorts of reasons, or just people not tolerating each other's differences. I felt it important to explain um, to the kids you know, what we were looking at at the memorial. And especially my older daughter, she's taken, you know, world history and she's heard about the the genocide in during World War II but to see the pictures of the individuals to see the memorial and and you know the stories there and to realize that these were real people i think that's important for younger people to see as as they grow up you know keep that in their minds that we don't want to repeat this what was her reaction what was your oldest daughter's reaction as she was walking through this space uh, she was, uh, I want to say horrified, but it wasn't It wasn't quite that strong. I think there was still a bit of her that you know, found it difficult to believe that uh, such a massive crime, like a crime like that could be committed on such a massive scale. Something that I didn't realize was just how complicit many of the other European countries were in rounding up Jews to ship out to these death camps. You know, that's that's information that was new to me even, that surprised me. And that we spent some time talking about that of like, why would these people just sit by and, you know, let this happen? Uh, These are good people, you would think. How did this happen? Did you, were you able to explain that? Or did, was there something that explained that? Um, I try to be really frank with her as far as the explanations of 
you know, the world isn't really a nice place. It's as nice as we make it. And, um, you know, the explanation I had for her, I don't think was a surprise for her either. You know, it's simply, um, if you don't, if, if, if you don't make sure that the cultural norm is to take care of each other, then people aren't necessarily going to take care of each other. Her reaction was simply a, this is terrible. Yeah. What was your reaction? Um, yeah, it's, it, so, I mean, uh, this is stuff you learned about in school back yeah. when you were, you know, teenager. You've been living with this knowledge mm-hmm. for most of your life. Yeah. First time you've gone to Holocaust Museum? The Holocaust Memorial. Holocaust yeah. Memorial. But you've known about this for, you know, 30 plus years of your of your life. But this is the first time you've actually encountered it in a real way. Yeah. Did it change what you thought you knew about that event? Well, like I mentioned, the 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 fact that you know, Hitler's party was able to convince other European nations that this was a a reasonable thing, not just a good thing, but a reasonable, even a reasonable thing to do, just blows my mind. And it changes your perception, I think, of what it means to be safe in this world, right? We make jokes now about, well, I can at least move to Canada, you know, something like that. But what if there was no safe place to move to? There are people hunting you down just because of who your mother was. Do you think you'd visit again? Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Why would you go back? What would you be wanting to experience or see or think about that would lead you back there? I think every time you go to a, uh, I don't want to say familiar, uh, it's not really a familiar place, but a place that you've been to um, and you take some time after you've developed as a person, you know, a year is enough time for you to change even a little bit. Um, you've experienced a lot of things over a year. So if you go by a year, five years later, you're practically a different person, even in some small way. Um, so you'll take away something different and you go back to a place like um, the Holocaust Memorial there. Um, it's such a moving place that I think every time you'll take away something different and it'll be beneficial. Would you recommend other people go? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's I think it would be valuable for everybody to see just what a horrible thing took place and how every day how calm the perpetrators of this appeared in the pictures that are shown at the at the Holocaust sites, the Holocaust um, memorial sites. The problem isn't as much the raving lunatics, um, you know, running people down in the streets. It's really the uh, the many people who can take something as terrible as rounding up millions and millions of of other human beings for no other reason than their religious belief, and uh, and murdering them, right? The people who can do that and sit back and drink a cup of tea, those people scare me. As an African-American choosing a Jewish memorial, Mm -hmm. uh, not your, probably not what people would expect. Yeah, I think this is more me being true to myself Yes, I am a black person, and I experience being black in America. 
but that doesn't mean that everything about me has to revolve around acting black. I am black, so I don't have to act black, if that makes sense. Picking a, a location that's important to me, regardless of is it black enough, is me just being more, more true to myself. What parallels do you see to what Jews went through in Germany and in Europe? Do you see warning signs that our community might want to pay attention to? Well, it's not strictly an African-American thing, but I definitely see the fear of you know, the Muslim religion uh, as a warning sign. You know, when a presidential candidate says that he's he would be for banning Muslims coming into the country and people cheer, that's scary to me. There's a huge contingent of people that don't know anything about cultures, you know, religious or ethnic cultures beyond their own, except what they see on TV. And they they seem to scoop up all of the news that is negative. So when it's gotten to the point now that the only time you see black people on TV is when there's been a shooting of a black person that might be racially motivated. And there's long been this kind of dehumanization of, of uh, black individuals, right? Where if you're wearing baggy pants and too much jewelry, then you're one of those uh, that we're supposed to be afraid of. Right, and you better have the cops looking, watching you. And that same thing is being applied to that same fear is being applied to Muslims. And guess what? There are a lot of Black Muslims, and you know that just doubles the fear for a lot of people. Let's not forget that around World War II, the U.S. also rounded up a lot of Japanese individuals. Um, put them in internment camps. Was that a great idea? Clearly no. But it was the it was all the rage at the time and all because of fear, right? And it's really fear that seems to drive a lot of a lot of the wrongdoings that we look back at nowadays, right? What can you or we do to address some of these fears, allay some of these fears or educate people around some of these issues? Uh, that's something I've been thinking about a lot. The thing that I've come to, at least now, is that the best thing we can do is give people in our community, the African-American community, an opportunity, as many opportunities as possible, to interact with people who would ordinarily be closed-minded about hanging out with Black folks. It's, it's one of those things where if you can associate an individual that you know with a race or you know, a religion, some specific background that you're otherwise unfamiliar with, suddenly all black men are less scary if you're if you actually hang out and can trust some black folks socially. How about the the idea that there's this idea of you're okay. It's the other yeah. folks. You know, so you're not like the other black people. Mm -hmm. I guess what I'm wondering is will Getting to know a black person who, for someone who may not know a lot of other or any other black people, is that just going to play into the, oh, but you're fine yeah. mindset? The, I think that's on people in the black community to, to, to fight that, to fight, you know, as they encounter individuals, friends, as it were, who might say that, like, 
oh, you're okay. You have to say, no, it's not just me, right? I think it's up to us in the black community to fight against that individually saying, I'm not that different from, you know, just anybody, not just other black people. Like, I'm a person first. And that's the sort of argument that you'll have with your friends, if they're really your friends, um, you know, white, Asian, Indian, Latino, whatever, those individuals should hear it from black people that, no, it's not just me. Like, I'm fine. And there are lots of other people that are fine. It's a very small minority of the minority that <laughs> that cause problems, right? For some reason, that minority makes it onto TV way more often than the majority of my minority. You said you're black, but you don't need to act black, mm -hmm. right? Kind of thing. By whatever definition of act black might be for somebody who's listening. What's interesting is growing up in Trinidad, we didn't grow up with race as a distinguishing factor. Class was more the distinguishing factor. Not that race did not play a part in relationships and in politics and so on, but they they were a secondary factor to to class. You know, I grew up surrounded by all types of different uh, races, black, white, Indian, Chinese, um, and any combination of mixtures that you can come up with for those particular people. Now, interestingly, every one of those combinations had a name, <laughs> right? So, you know, if a black person, a white person had a kid, there was a name. A black person, an Indian person had a name, had a kid, they had a name. Every Every possible combination was distinguished in some way. Chinegro. So, <laughs> so it's not that race was not, you didn't pay attention to it. You very much paid attention to it. But it wasn't used necessarily as the primary way to keep somebody out or away from, from something. It did happen. And a lot of Calypso from that time, from the, from the 60s and 70s, if you listen to the words really carefully and you, you have some knowledge of some of the history, those Calypsos are telling the story of what is going on in politics and in, and, in, and in Trinidad. And some of the songs are talking about black people being kept out of certain clubs um, or Indian people being kept out of certain clubs, Chinese people being kept out of certain, whatever it is, um, or being allowed to do something versus not allowed to do something based on their race. So it's it, it certainly was happening. But in many cases, it went deeper than that. It went to class. If you were lower class, you were very much lower class. And if you were upper class, you were very much upper class. And those things were the thing that I grew up with uh, as a distinguishing. Uh, I learned not to associate with people of, of a certain class because it was beneath you or they're above your station. So how was it outwardly visible? Uh, were you able to see like, oh, that person is definitely upper class or lower class? Is it as easy to tell as just as you can tell race? You know, as a kid, I don't think I was able to. Today, when I look back, I can see that I grew up on the rising side of middle class, and I can see what upper class looked like, and I can see what lower class looked like, and race played a part of that, but there were a lot of people of many races who fell into the class that I was a part of, and 
uh, my grandmother raised us as if we were upper class or at least tried to in terms of ex- the things she exposed us to and the people she exposed us to and um, the activities that we did. We'd, we'd go to the Holiday Inn. I think it was the Holiday Inn um, after hours, right? Um, we wouldn't be staying at the Holiday Inn, but my grandmother knew people. And so we'd go and hang out by the pool at you know a Sunday, Saturday evening or whatever it is because my grandmother knew people who were at a level where she could ask the favor effectively of, can I bring my grandkids to hang out holiday at a you know, pool? Chaka um, Cabana was, was a place that we went to in Trinidad all the time. It was one of the, call it, you know, semi-private beaches. They had food and all kinds of shit. It was, um, as far as I can recall, wasn't a completely public open beach. Um, it was open and that anybody can go in, but I think you had to know people. <laughs> I always got the impression that we were getting a chance to do something that not a lot of other people got a chance to do. It was What was it called? Shaka Cabana. Could you spell that? I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sort of Shaka Khan, but right, and Copacabana combined. Exactly. Right? exactly. Exactly right. Can you recall the first time you went to Shaka Cabana? No. Um, I don't remember a time when Chaka Cabana did not exist for me. It's one of those things where it's always existed. I've always gone there, right? In the uh, beginning, there yeah, was Chaka Cabana. Exactly. <laughs> I was born and there was Chaka Cabana. No, I don't remember a time before I went to Chaka Cabana. This is what my youth was. It was coming to Chaka Cabana with my, with my grandmother and my cousins uh, and spending... Literally the entire day, we'd get there like 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock in the morning, and we wouldn't leave until 6, 7 in, in the evening. And we would just hang out at the beach as a family all day. And it's the one place that, like, when I think of growing up in Trinidad, uh, it's the one place that always pops into my head. On a Sunday, you would go there. That's just what you did. And so every time you go back there, you go to Shaka Cabana. So, unfortunately, no, because Shaka Cabana is no longer a thing. What happened to it? Uh, apparently, it fell into disrepair. It was built on uh, or near a military base. The Trinidadian military or like a foreign military? Both. Uh, we are very close with, with, with the United States. Um, and we were a base of operations during World War II. That history is long lost in my the mist of my very old brain. But there was a U.S. outpost, or I guess even there is a U.S. outpost, for all I know. And so you'd go through a military outpost to get to Shaka Cabana. And I guess at some point, it just fell into disrepair. I think it exists as a thing, but nobody goes there. Nobody in my family seems to go there anymore. We've moved a little far afield, but I think we've touched on something that that may be unusual to uh, a certain number of Americans, this whole idea of a class-based system. And that sort of thing playing out in a workplace setting. I know you didn't work in Trinidad. You were still young when you left, but that must have carried over into the workplace in the same way that race seems to carry over into the workplace here in the in the US. My grandfather was a barrister. White wig. What's a barrister? Um he made coffee. Oh no, wait, that's barista. Sorry. 
How am I going to resist that joke? Come on. Uh, you, if you ever saw pictures of judges in England, you know, with the white wigs, he was one of those guys. So, yeah, so he was a barrister. Uh, I have no idea whether he was unique in his space. He was very light-skinned, and I have a feeling that him being light-skinned helped a lot in his ability to uh, pursue that particular career. Race is always a part of the conversation. That's just human nature. I think it helped that he grew up, and my grandmother grew up, with a certain level of class distinction that allowed them to walk in a certain space that even if they'd been the exact same skin tone, they might not have otherwise been able to walk in. Class had a greater impact, I think, on what they were able to do, what I was able to do, the schools I was able to go to, all this other stuff, than than the color of my skin. When I said that I grew up surrounded by all these different races, I mean that. I mean, the schools that I went to, there was one of everything. (laughs) Whatever existed in Trinidad, there was a bunch of those there. So, would you recommend any of your friends visit Trinidad? Why would you do that to me? (laughs) And when are we going? (laughs) Are we staying at your place? Sounds like Shaka Cabana's gone. (laughs) You know what? For most people, I would say no. You probably don't want to visit Trinidad. Trinidad has changed significantly since I grew up there. In a lot of ways, Trinidad is a microcosm of many of the issues that we see in America. There is tremendous financial disparity. There's a lot of poverty. There's a lot of political corruption problems. All the reasons that people complain about America, all the issues that America has around race and class and money and politics, they all exist just on a much on a smaller scale. Trinidad has become somewhat dangerous. So, no, I wouldn't recommend most people go to Trinidad. If you're not able to fix this in Trinidad where you know there's a there's a a better ratio of the different races, you know, the 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 races mix a little better than certain parts of the US, let's say. I would um, actually I'd actually uh I I'll challenge that. Mm. The race distinctions are becoming more clear than they have been historically. It's still very much class-based, but classes are becoming much more aligned with race than they had been in the past. Why do you think that that change has happened? Um, I can speculate that some of it has to do with money. Trinidad is a is actually one of the richer of the West Indian, I think maybe even one of the richest of the West Indian Caribbean countries. Lots of liquid petroleum, oil production. It's a base of operations for a lot of European countries uh, operating in that region. And a lot of money came in very quickly. And I think a lot of people came to try to take advantage of that money. People who did not grow up in the culture. who didn't, and, and by the culture, I mean the West Indian culture. They brought their own cultures with them and their own expectations with them and their own biases with them. And I think once that changed, once we became a global and international uh, destination, like for real, real, 
people brought all of their biases and all their expectations with them, and it's starting to it has started having an effect. You still see the races mix, just less so than in the past. But the food is awesome, and the carnival is the best in the world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, so this has been up. this has been another episode of Curious. New episodes are released every two weeks. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to Ron for joining me in this episode. You can follow him on Twitter at MechaRonZilla. You can follow me at Jason Anthony Guy, or you can visit us at CuriousTalkShow.com. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. I think that's gold. I don't know. No? I don't know. I'd have to listen to it. Because <laughs> I don't know about you, but when I say sh- I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs>